Fired Up show starts right now. Welcome, and thank you so much for taking time out to listen to the Fired Up podcast right here from WJMS Media. We are so grateful for your attention to our weekly show. This is Steve, and I'm your host. Uh, we've got a what can only be classified as a crazy week uh, in politics to talk about on this episode. But as always, let's start it off with our countdown of where we are uh, with the COVID. And that is we're at 92.9 million cases of the virus. Uh, 1,037,000 people have died from COVID-19. 602 million people have been vaccinated. And also, uh, we are noting that there are 11,177 cases of monkeypox confirmed as reported here in the United States. So we'll, uh, we'll probably keep that on the tracking as we go forward uh, with our numbers each show. So welcome, everybody. Um, this has been <laughs> what could... Uh, I guess be described as a wild and wacky news week um, and we're going to cover some of the the big topics uh, of the week obviously but a couple of other things I want to touch on first before we get to the big bomb story of the week uh, and you know one of the things if you're a regular listener to my podcast and perhaps before that to the radio show version of Fired Up then you understand that the nature of my show is to talk about the political machine, the things that go on in politics in this country. And we try very, very hard to look at all sides of the uh, political games. And, you know, that includes things that are Republican as well as things that are Democrat. Well, this week we're going to kick it off with uh, something from the Democratic Party. And, you know, as I've, I've said many times, you know, if they're doing something that needs to be brought to your attention, I'm going to bring it to you. And um, this is a story that came um, from the Associated Press, and it was reported out over the weekend that uh, Senator Kristen Sinema, uh, Arizona Democrat, and uh, one of the two people who uh, was a thorn in the side of the Democratic agenda and President Biden's agenda moving through the Senate. Uh, has been reported that she received nearly $1 million over the past year from private equity professionals, hedge fund managers, and venture capitalists whose taxes would have increased under the uh, newly signed legislation um, that uh, just went across President Biden's desk. Um, so one of the things Democrats have long promised that they were going to raise taxes on the you know, highest echelons of uh, individuals and corporations in this country. And, you know, as as you know, if you've been following the news, uh, most of the super wealthy and the largest corporations pay a significantly lower rate on their earnings than ordinary workers. The people that work for them pay more as a percentage of uh, their salary and taxes that the wealthiest people in this country do. 
Um, but just as the Democrats were closing in on legislation that would have raised taxes on the highest earners, uh, Christian Cinema forced a series of changes to the party's $740 billion election year spending package, eliminating a proposed carried interest tax increase on private equity earnings while securing a $35 billion exemption that will spare much of the investment industry from a separate tax increase uh, other huge corporations already have to pay. The bill, with uh, her alterations intact, uh, was given final approval by Congress on Friday and should be signed by President Biden at some point this coming week. Uh, so, you know, just by way of background, uh, Senator Sinema has long aligned herself with the interests of private equity, hedge funds, and venture capital, and it has helped her net at least $1.5 million in campaign contributions since she was elected to the House a decade ago. Uh, but 983000 she collected since last summer more than doubled what the industry donated to her during all of her preceding years in Congress combined. And that's according to a report out of the Associated Press. So, you know, the, the defense, if there is one, uh, of wealthy investors' tax treat treatment by Senator Sinema uh, offers a jarring contrast to her background. She is uh, known as a Green Party activist and, as it says in the, this article, a self-styled, quote, Prada socialist who once likened accepting campaign cash to bribery and later called for big corporations and the rich to pay their fair share before launching her first campaign for Congress in 2012. So, you know, the article cites uh, several of the donations that she's gotten from, you know, some of these private equity firms. Uh, she collected $47,100 in contributions from 16 uh, high-ranking officials from the private equity firm Welch, Carson, Anderson, and Stowe. Uh, she also uh, collected large sums uh, from another group that, according to the article, coincided with a $28 million lobbying effort spearheaded by the investment firm Blackstone that culminated on the, sem the Senate floor last weekend. So, you know, by the time the, the bill was up for debate during the marathon series of votes that was held uh, as the bill was making its final march through the Senate, uh, the, the Senator Sinema had already forced Democrats to abandon their carried interest tax increase. Uh, after private equity lobbyists discovered a provision in the bill, however, that would have subjected many of them to a separate 15% corporate minimum tax, they urgently pressed uh, Senator Sinema and other centrist Democrats uh, for additional changes. And this was according to an email that was obtained by the Associated Press and other sources familiar with the communication. Uh, given the breaking nature of this development, we need as many offices as possible weighing in with concerns to Leader Schumer's office. And that's from Blackstone lobbyist Ryan McConaughey wrote in, in an email that uh, went out on Saturday that was obtained by the Associated Press. Uh, 
Uh, and, you know, the the idea was that they wanted not only to eliminate uh, the the uh, tax increase on the wealthiest companies and these hedge funds and so forth, but they also wanted to eliminate this 15 percent corporate minimum minimum tax that many companies as many companies in this country are already paying. Um, of course, the the arguments are that you know such taxes and and such increases uh, impact the the industry's uh, e effectiveness, uh, e their impact on in in her case Arizona's economy and competitiveness, um, and and so forth, uh, which is a typical argument that you know these companies give is you know if if we're forced to pay more taxes that's less money we have to go through many of our quote important programs close quote which is an argument that uh, many in the Democratic Party disagree uh, they say that such favorable tax treatment does little to boost the overall economy and argue there's little compelling evidence to suggest its benefits are enjoyed beyond some of the wealthiest investors um, you know and one thing in, in researching the story, you know, the AP is reporting that Blackstone, uh, a significant source of campaign contributions, owns large tracts of real estate in Cinema's home state of Arizona. The firm was condemned by United Nations experts in 2019 who said Blackstone's financial model was responsible for a financialization of housing that has driven up rents and home costs, pushing low-income and increasingly middle-income people from their homes. And we have seen this occurring not just in Arizona, but in you know, other areas of the country as well, where you know, property values are being uh, boosted up through this process of financialization uh, to where low-income and moderate-income people can't afford to, to live in the, in the housing that they have. So, you know, but getting back into the story, another of the financial services donor is Centerbridge Partners, a New York-based firm that buys up the, de the debt of distressed governments and companies and often uses hardball tactics to extract value. Uh, since 2017, Cinema has collected at least $29,000 from donors associated with the firm, including co-founder Mark Gallagy and his wife, Elizabeth Strickler, records are showing. In 2012, Centerbridge Partners purchased Arizona-based restaurant chain P.F. Chang's for roughly $1 billion. After loading the struggling company up with $675 million of debt, they sold it to another private equity group in 2019, according to a report in Bloomberg News. The company received a $10 million corona aid, I'm sorry, coronavirus aid loan to cover payroll, which the federal government later forgave, but shed jobs and closed locations as it struggled with the pandemic. Uh, another part saying that Sandovich Partners is also part of a consortium of hedge funds that helped ed uh, usher in an era of austerity in Puerto Rico after buying up billions of dollars of the island government's $72 billion debt and, and filing legal proceedings to collect. A subsidiary of Centerbridge Partners was among a group of creditors who repeatedly sued one of the U.S. territory's pension funds. In one 2018 lawsuit, 
the group of creditors asked the judge to divert money from a Puerto Rican pen pension fund in order to collect on uh, the payment for their debt. So, you know, these are the, the people who uh, are, you know, bankrolling just one senator. You know, as, as many have said, and as I agree, uh, the, the money that flows into uh, the House and the Senate uh, and government in general uh, from the private sector in the form of lobbying dollars and campaign dollars uh, is well beyond obscene and is something that needs to be addressed. You know, one of the things that uh, made the situation worse was the Supreme Court decision on Citizens United, which basically said that uh, money is speech and is therefore protected and you, know, you can give an unlimited amount of money uh, to political candidates uh, under the guise of free speech. So that's something else that will need to be addressed uh, as we go forward and another talking point for when we're talking with our, our elected officials. So what does all this mean? Well, all this means is that when we look at what we have gone through in the past year, in my opinion, with Senator Sinema and with Senator Joe Manchin. Repeatedly, we have heard about how that they are uh, in, in debt to and owing to uh, various lobbying groups uh, in their state and at the national level. And here is a clear example of, of what that means. So a, a proposal going through that would have had some of the wealthiest uh, investors and hedge fund companies in the country paying a more fair share of their taxes get scuttled by uh, a senator holdout who received you know, more than a million and a half dollars from that same industry that she was working on legislation to regulate. So it, it just another example of one of the problems with politics in this country, both Democratic all right, well, moving on, and, and I said at the outset that this was kind of a firecracker news week, so um, I wanted to bring up a story that came out of Texas, uh, and it's, it's a story uh, that talks about a campaign rally that was uh, held by uh, gubernatorial candidate Beto O'Rourke, and you, you may have heard about this. It, it kind of went uh, viral very quickly after it happened. If you spend any time on social media, uh, you've probably heard this story already. But uh, what was going on was, uh, and this was reported on August 11th, and uh, Texas gubernatorial candidate Beto O'Rourke uh, was at a campaign rally on Wednesday when he called uh, one audience member a mother effer. And while uh, the former U.S. representative received cheers from the crowd, political experts say he went too far. So the, the context of it was that he was giving a speech and he was talking ar around uh, the issue of gun control and you know, the uh, outcomes of the Uvalde school shooting and you know, semi-automatic weapons and particularly uh, AR-15 weapons, where he was saying how, you know, for example, 
that weapon is a weapon of war designed to put a bullet uh, into a, a man's head through their army helmet or through their helmet at 500 feet. And uh, someone in the crowd uh, laughed. And Beto spun around quickly, pointed at the heckler and said, uh, quote, it may be funny to you, mother effer, but it's not funny to me, okay? And I blanked out the second part of the, the mother word just because. Um, so that to me was a, a multi-tiered moment. Um, it was a moment of, oh snap, type reaction. And then it was a moment of, that's what we need from the Democratic Party. The Democratic Party needs to draw that line, stand up, and take it to the Republicans. The heckler that spoke out was part of a group that was there uh, who are uh, Governor Greg Abbott supporters who were attending uh, this, this session uh, ostensibly to be hecklers. Um, you know, and you can you can kind of make the argument that you know the language was maybe a little bit over the top, but in the heat of the moment and in the reaction of the moment, it absolutely fit, uh, and it illustrates the point that I've I've tried to make in the past, uh, where you know we the the Democrats need to stop soft soaping their message. They need, especially with 90 days, give or take, uh, to the midterms and, you know, two years and two months till the uh, general election, they need to, in no uncertain and unclear terms, make their positions known and understood. When that happens, then you can have a, an informed and educated electorate. You can have, you know, a fruitful debate on the issues now you know it, it shouldn't degrade down into four-letter words and and so forth but you know so much of what uh, occurs and what comes out of the media these days consists of four-letter words and you know personal character assassinations and so forth that um, you know even you know as it said in this article um, you know, O'Rourke's opponents will likely seize this moment to attack his credibility. Governor Greg Abbott, who intends to keep his job, will likely use the soundbite to target voters who frown upon that kind of language. Oh my, clutch your pearls. Um, you know, you, you can't walk down a street in pretty much any city or town in this country and not hear, you know, words like that or worse. Uh, a as a matter of common conversation. So, you know, okay, you're upset that he dropped the MF bomb at, at a political rally. Oh my goodness. But the, the, the main point of it is that it grabbed the attention. It got the moment. And, you know, it, it isn't some time where a politician is giving a stump speech and people are going, yeah, yeah, yeah. And everybody, you know, that's there really is, is hearing, you know, that, that Charlie Brown, wah, 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 wah. No, 
Democrats, if you want to get your message out there, you've got to push it out there full throttle. You've got to push it out there with everything you've got. And if that means using a little colorful language, so be it. But you've got to get your message out there or it's going to be a dark time uh, in this country uh, from your perspective. So, you know, while I enjoyed Beto's remarks, um, I for one am not offended by it. Um, but for those that may be, I'm, I apologize. But, you know, it, it was a statement that perfectly fit the moment. Here he was talking about just the, the carnage that these weapons caused on those young children in that school. And someone in that crowd laughed like it was funny. Uh, I'm sorry, I probably would have said the same thing. Um, you know, I probably would have uh, not stopped at one colorful word. You know, so it, 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 it's an interesting moment. Um, it is an insight into where our political discourse is going these days. And it is something that uh, we need to make sure, if we're Democrats, that we are, you know, stepping up to the plate and not shying away uh, of, from that type of response. Just my opinion. I, of course, would love to know your opinion on it. So if you have, uh, if you heard the story, you know, if you, you've heard the sound clip, uh, send an email to the show. Let me know what you thought. Uh, on the moment, on uh, the the laughter from the the guy in the crowd and Beto O'Rourke's response to it, uh, you can reach the show at FiredUpRadio at yahoo.com. Please send emails, and I would love to get your opinion. So, all right, uh, we're gonna take an early break uh, and and split our show as we get ready to get into the monster story of the week. And of course, that is uh, the FBI raid on Mar-a-Lago. We're gonna talk details on what transpired and, and perhaps lay out some insights on what it all means. So please stay, stay engaged. We'll be right back after this message here on the Fired Up Podcast. Right now, our country feels divided but there's a place where people are coming together. I gotta tell you, I was nervous to talk to someone so different than me. Me too, but I'm glad we are. Love Has No Labels and One Small Step are helping people with different political views, beliefs, and life experiences come together through conversation, and it feels good. Wow, your story is so... Uh, Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> when people actually sit down, talk, and listen to one another, they can break down boundaries and connect as human beings. At lovehasnolabels.com slash one small step, you can listen to amazing, life-changing conversations and find simple tools to start a conversation of your own. I know one thing. This conversation gives me hope. It gives me a lot of hope, too. Take a step toward bringing our country and your community together by having the courage to start a conversation at lovehasnolabels.com slash one small step. A message from StoryCorps, Love Has No Labels, and the Ad Council. And we're back. And for those of you, if you follow politics, you know that part of the strategy is to keep your party brand in the top of the news cycle uh, any way you can. 
Although I don't think that this is exactly what the Republicans had in mind. Um, if you've been following the news all week, then you know that on Monday, the FBI and uh, other law enforcement agencies uh, served a search warrant on the residence of former President Donald Trump at Mar-a-Lago. Uh, in that, they were looking for documents that had been removed from the White House uh, by the former president after, uh, as he left office, uh, that uh, according to the, the search warrant, uh, he was not legally entitled to retain possession of. So that has been the story that has you know, dominated the news cycles uh, all of last week. Um, lots of speculation, lots of uh, people on both sides coming out with, you know, what they think happened and uh, their assessments and so forth. Uh, what has been in the news uh, has been, you know, pretty much an ongoing discovery of what exactly transpired in this search. So let, let's dig into that a little bit and uh, start with an article that came out from Reuters on August 12th. And it says, uh, FBI seized top secret documents at Trump's home, Espionage Act cited. And uh, the byline is by Sarah Lynch. And as I said, that was on the Reuters.com site. Uh, the article starts with FBI agents in this week's search of former U.S. President Donald Trump's Florida home removed 11 sets of classified documents, including some marked as top secret, the Justice Department said on Friday, while also disclosing that it had probable cause to conduct the search based on possible Espionage Act violations. The bombshell disclosures were made in a search warrant approved by a U.S. magistrate judge and accompanying documents uh, released four days after agents searched Trump's Mar-a-Lago residence in Palm Beach. The Espionage Act, one of three laws cited in the warrant application, dates to 1917 and makes it a crime to release information that could harm national security. Uh, President Trump, in a statement on his social media platform, said the records were all declassified and placed in secure storage. So let's let's analyze just that first bit right there. So in in the boxes of documents that were removed from the White House uh, by the Trump team as they left office uh, were included. Uh, at least 11 sets of documents that were either classified, uh, top secret, or uh, top secret SCI, which is secure compartmentalized information. And it is the highest uh, secret rating that we have. In a further statement, he said, quote, they didn't need to seize anything. They could have had it anytime they wanted without playing politics and breaking into Mar-a-Lago, according to Trump. Now, caveat that with the fact that in June that uh, the Justice Department, along with uh, representatives from the National Archives, 
had met with Trump and his lawyers uh, and had secured some, uh, I believe it was 20 boxes of materials that uh, were returned to the archivists at the National Archives uh, and you know, should not have been carted off to Mar-a-Lago in the first place. So the, the question is raised then, if they took those boxes, why didn't they take the others? Why didn't they take the ones they got this time? So as, as we go on with the article, um, and it continues saying, although the FBI on Monday carted away material labeled as classified, the three laws cited as the basis for the warrant make it a crime to mishandle government records, regardless of whether they are classified. As such, Trump's claim that he declassified the documents would have no bearing on the potential legal violations at issue. Now, that refers to the fact that presidents, uh, sitting presidents, have an absolute power to declassify any uh, item or document that they choose. Uh, there is a process to go through. Uh, and, you know, it, it is one that, you know, we, we don't yet have information on to what extent it was followed. But giving, to give you an example, former President Barack Obama uh, gathered some 30 million documents uh, to go into, you know, his presidential library. And, you know, he exercised and followed the procedures to declassify you know, all of them that were able to be declassified. Uh, it does not sound like, and we, we don't have this as a statement of fact and probably won't know until uh, this goes to trial, if it goes to trial, uh, that the Trump team followed any of the procedures and precedents that are there that should have been followed. Um, so that's just one little curious wrinkle in this and there are a few others and we'll get to those as well. The Justice Department uh, has used the Espionage Act in high-profile cases in recent years and you may remember these. Uh, they used and, and prosecuted uh, National Security Agency contractor Edward Snowden, former military intelligence analyst Chelsea Manning, and WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange under violations of the Espionage Act for inappropriately handing, handling government document. So just by way of background, there are three primary levels of classification for sensitive government materials. Top secret, secret, and confidential. So as I said, top secret is the highest level of classification for closely held U.S. national security information. Uh, such documents are usually kept in special government facilities because disclosure could gravely damage national security. You may recall that when the Mueller report was released um, that uh, in order for uh, members of Congress or members of the Judiciary Committees to see it, they had to go into a uh, special secured room uh, where they were not allowed to take any electronic devices in. Uh, that was because that document, in its unredacted form, was categorized as top secret, uh, sensitive, compartmented information. Uh, 
Uh, so it could only be viewed in a very controlled environment. You weren't allowed to make copies, write notes or anything. It's just so that you could read it and be aware of what it contained. Uh, in a similar fashion, these documents uh, deal with some of the uh, highest secrets uh, in our country. And there was some uh, reporting that came out on the Washington Post that said that uh, some of the documents were related to nuclear materials or nuclear weapons, uh, and, and others may have been uh, related to um, you know, the military or espionage capabilities of other countries. In any event, they were not documents that you wanted to just have um, hanging out in a basement storage room uh, at Mar-a-Lago, uh, where you know there was little, if no, if if any control over who had access, uh, when, who could come and go, who could take documents out, and so forth. And in fact, until an inventory is completed by the National Archives, we may not know if all of the documents removed were in fact recovered. So that's still something hanging over this process. Um, you know, and it, it, it is no coincidence that their raid uh, on Mar-a-Lago, as, as the FBI has reported, they purposefully raided the facility on Monday when the former president was in New York uh, answering uh, an, an appearance before the New York State Attorney General's office in the civil investigation into the Trump family business practices, um, you know, and side note, uh, he didn't answer any questions. He invoked the Fifth Amendment uh, 440 times. So take that for what it, what it means to you. Um, the, the getting back to this article, one of the things that is being bandied about and being argued is whether or not um, the items were declassified. Well, the, especially if the documents in question pertain to nuclear uh, materials, nuclear weapons, you know, nuclear science, and so forth, um, it doesn't matter whether or not they can be declassified. They are under the control of the Atomic Energy Commission, uh, and only the Atomic Energy Commission can release those, do those documents for anything like public consumption. Um, you know, and, and according to the article, uh, even though Trump is claiming that he declassified the materials uh, as a matter of standing rule when he took them out of his office at the White House, uh, it, it does not matter whether the uh, documents are classified or not. They are still considered government information and um, not to be uh, distributed without express approvals from the relevant government agencies. In addition, according to legal experts uh, who have studied the matter, uh, they're saying that Trump's claim that he had declassified the materials would not be a useful defense should he ever face charges. And according to um, at least one uh, quote, the statute does not even strictly require even that the information be classified so long as it is relating 
to the national defense. And that's according to Northwestern University law professor Heidi uh, Kitroser uh, said, and she's referring to the Espionage Act where that is cited. The investigation into Trump's removal of records started this year after the National Archives and Records Administration, the agency charged with safeguarding presidential records that belong to the public, made a referral to the Justice Department. Uh, so they, um, they referred a concern to the Justice Department that there were documents that uh, should not have been removed from the White House without approval uh, that were in fact removed. So how did this escalate? Well, there's an article from Second Nexus by Jay Kuo, uh, and this came out on August 14th. And uh, the, the, the byline is, it's way worse than we'd ever imagined. Um, and it starts off, when Donald Trump left the White House in January of 2021, it was widely reported that he had taken many items with him that on, its, on their face appeared to be government property. At the time, these boxes were evidence of, quote, Donald being Donald once again, flouting the norms, this time around presidential records and gift items. Uh, and the article cites, the National Archivists were not pleased. They diligently and methodically set about attempting to retrieve the items he'd improperly taken to Mar-a-Lago. When they finally recovered some 15 boxes, they were alarmed to discover that it was more than just random records and Trump keepsakes like personal letters from Kim Jong-un. In the boxes, they found documents that were actually classified, raising the stakes considerably over what Trump had actually removed. The National Archivist made a criminal referral to the Justice Department based on that discovery. From there, the Department of Justice convened a grand jury to investigate the removal of sensitive government documents by the former administration. This didn't raise very much interest from the media at the time. And yeah, there was almost no mention of uh, the request by the archivist for a grand jury. After all, Presidential Records Act really had no teeth to it from an enforcement standpoint, and it didn't seem at all likely that indictments would ever be issued around what seemed like procedural missteps. So, you know, according to the article, he said it came as a big shock when the next major piece of news around these documents was a full FBI search of Florida's property pursuant to a duly issued warrant, a move that set off howls of protest among GOP leaders, threats to the lives of agents and Justice Department officials from Trump's base, and an apparently a lone shooter who took it upon himself to attack the Cincinnati field office of the FBI and was killed in the attempt. So, you know, this, this was, you know, not just a, hey, there's some papers missing, let's go down to Mar-a-Lago and get them. No, this was an investigation, this was months in the making, and it was very much done in an I's dotted, T's crossed fashion, as one would expect when you were dealing with a former president. So what happened next? Investigators began interviewing Trump staff and former officials who had moved documents to Mar-a-Lago. Then a subpoena for additional documents, which were still somehow remaining 
with the former president was issued from the federal grand jury this spring. Justice Department officials, including the head of the Department of Counterintel—I'm sorry, the head of the department's counterintelligence section—traveled in June to Mar-a-Lago to inquire about the missing documents. There, they met with Trump briefly and then with his attorneys more extensively, who ultimately turned over more documents, with some marked top secret or higher. This had not been reported earlier so no one except the Justice Department and Trump and his advisors knew this had occurred. After the June meeting, the Justice Department subpoenaed the Trump Organization for surveillance footage that showed who had regular access to the basement storage area where materials were purportedly located. The Justice Department reportedly began to suspect that Trump's lawyers had not been entirely truthful about whether there were any documents still left returned, unreturned. And, you know, side note, along that time, his lawyers were um, reporting and had signed in papers saying that all documents related to the items in question having been removed from the White House had, in fact, been returned. Yet, lo and behold, they found an additional 15 boxes of documents or 20 boxes of documents. So, you know, it, it is, you know, really, really not strange, but curious that um, the lawyers would expose themselves to the legal ramifications of lying to federal officials, um, you know, over these documents. Um, so, the, the process continues, uh, the investigation continues, and the work on putting together the warrant goes on. Uh, it is, it's important to note that warrants must be timely, uh, and this is to prevent law enforcement overreach. Um, some kind of new information must have come into the hands of authorities that there were still highly classified documents still left unrecovered at Mar-a-Lago. And then... Um, you know, in the week, it's then reported that someone inside of the Trump team had provided that new key information. Also, yesterday, the New York, um, and yesterday being uh, last Tuesday, um, the New York Times reported that allies close to Trump had advised GOP leaders to ease off on their attacks of the Justice Department. So, you know, it, while this is going on, you know, um, Donald Trump and his supporters, uh, his base, you know, are, are raising holy hell with the Department of Justice and so forth. And, and I've got something else I'm gonna add to that um, in a minute. Um, and one of the one of the rumors that came out was that some of the documents were nuclear documents. And this came from a bombshell article in the Washington Post, uh, which said Trump, Trump allies had been, you know, worried about. According to sources familiar with the investigation, the items that were being sought within Mar-a-Lago included documents relating to nuclear weapons which are among the most highly classified type of information imaginable. 
The sources did not offer additional details about the information uh, the FBI agents conducting the search were seeking, whether it involved weapons belonging to the United States or some other nation, but the very idea that Trump might be in personal possession of such documents is almost unfathomable, according to the article, and certainly ought to silence uh, Attorney General Garland's critics. So, you know, and, and as I said, this was not something that occurred over a few days. This was a, a lengthy and detailed process, um, you know, and it's still an ongoing process. Uh, so the, the article says, you know, we don't even know whether nuclear weapons related documents were actually retrieved as part of the search. We only have reports from anonymous sources that the search included those documents. We can presume, however, that the affidavits in support of searching for those documents were enough to convince a federal magistrate to agree that there was probable cause to believe they were there. Uh, in such an explosive matter, the stakes as high as they could possibly be, it seems likely that the Justice Department was confident in its assessment. So, you know, it, it, it goes on uh, to, to detail, you know, kind of why they, why they believe that and, and so forth. From and under trying to understand perhaps a, a motive, you know, is why would, would Trump do such a thing? Uh, you know, and it, it talks about if they in fact exist, that likely means there's some other reason for why he took them in the first place and then dodged a subpoena for their return, even having his lawyers go so far as to be less than truthful, some might say obstructionist, with Justice Department department officials. Uh, there are many unanswered questions around. For example, the Trump White House's attempts in 2019 to assist the Saudi government in developing nuclear technology. Why the Saudis recently funded Jared Kushner's private equity company to the tune of $2 billion against the advice of their own analysts. And why Saudi Arabia is now bankrolling Trump with golf tournaments occurring on his property. So, you know, this, this is just taking on all the dimensions of a soap opera, um, and it is still unfolding. There are still uh, questions to be asked and questions to be answered. And, you know, a lot of people are weighing in. One of them, uh, Senator Rand Paul uh, from Kentucky, uh, and this came out on Saturday and he is calling for the repeal of the es Espionage Act. The Espionage Act of 1917, uh, and this, is, this comes from an article in uh, Business Insider. The Espionage Act of 1917 prohibited sharing information that could harm the U.S., uh, following the Mar-a-Lago raid, the DOJ is investigating if Trump violated the Espionage Act. Republican Senator Rand Paul of Kentucky called for the repeal of the Espionage Act after it was revealed that the Justice Department is investigating if former President Donald Trump potentially violated the act. According to Senator Paul, the Espionage Act was abused from the beginning 
to jail dissenters of World War I. It has long passed time to repeal this egregious affront to the First Amendment. In the Espionage Act, key facets, Section 793, which is actually the section of the law that is included in the uh, search warrant as one of the laws violated uh, with the documents going to Mar-a-Lago, uh, is Section 793 is concerned with gathering, transmitting, or losing defense information which relates to any document relating to national defense that through gross negligence was, quote, illegally removed from its proper place of custody to be lost, stolen, abstracted, or destroyed. Uh, the, the article says, um, again, that they took away numerous boxes of documents from Trump's home, uh, 11 classified documents, including some marked top secret. Uh, I have a copy of the warrant along with the inventory list from the FBI to Donald Trump's uh, attorney uh, detailing what was removed from Mar-a-Lago. I will include a link to this if you haven't seen it yet um, to in, in the Facebook page uh, in the fired up radio page on Facebook. Um, so, I mean, the, ref the warrant itself is, is basically two pages. The supporting document, which consists of an attachment A and an attachment B. Attachment A just describes the property to be searched and it lists the physical address of Mar-a-Lago uh, in Palm Beach. Uh, the locations to be searched uh, include the, quote, 45 office, all storage rooms, and all other rooms or areas where within the premises used or available to be used by F. POTUS and his staff, and which boxes or documents could be stored, including all structures or any buildings on the, prem on the estate. It does not include areas currently, i.e. at the time of the search, being occupied, rented, or used by third parties such as Mar-a-Lago members and not otherwise used or available to be used by F. POTUS and his staff such as private guest suites. And then attachment B cites the law that the search warrant is based on. And even though you know the reporting is that there are three laws that uh, he has uh, allegedly violated. The one that is cited for the search warrant is 18 U.S.C. Section 793-2071 or 1519, which, as I just mentioned earlier, is under the Espionage Act. And that says, including the following, any physical documents with classification markings along with any containers, boxes, including any other contents in which such documents are located, as well as any other containers or boxes that are collectively stored or found together with the aforementioned documents and containers or boxes. Put a pin in that. We're going to touch base on that in a minute. Um, information including uh, communications in any form regarding the retrieval, storage, transmission, of nat national defense information or classified materials. C, any government or 
and or presidential records created between January 20th, 2017 and January 20th, 2021, or D, any evidence of the knowing alteration, destruction, or concealment of any government and or presidential records or any documents with, class with classification markings. The other document that's included in the search warrant that's been distributed is the receipt for property. Um, so, you know, again, this is the itemized receipt of what materials were removed from Mar-a-Lago by the FBI. Uh, descriptions are very vague um, and, and many are just box labeled with a box number um, and then some are miscellaneous secret documents and so forth. Uh, there's no detailed description of those boxes. So I'll post the link for the uh, subpoena as well. So. Um, one last point that I said I wanted to put a pin in, just at the time as I sit down to record the show, uh, I saw a news blurb come across my radar that Donald Trump was requesting politely from the Justice Department that um, documents uh, that were considered attorney-client privilege, uh, which may have been you know, scooped up along with the documents the FBI seized, uh, that he wants to have those returned. So, you know, I, I would say, you know, once the FBI does its thorough inventory, those documents will be returned uh, to former President Trump uh, as they have, uh, unless they have bearing on the criminal case, but otherwise they will be returned, I imagine. So, as I said, an exciting week. Um, next week looks like uh, it's going to be more of the same. So, you know, stay tuned. We'll keep you informed. Thanks, as always, for listening. I do appreciate it. Uh, and uh, we will look forward to uh, doing this all again in seven days. Be safe. Take care. And I'll talk to you again, as I said, in seven days. Mm -hmm.